are at least two major public conversations going on about health care costs and health care spending in the U.S. right now. One of them, prompted by provocative articles in the press, zeroes in on services and procedures in the U.S., such as colonoscopies or hospital births, that are among the most expensive in the world for reasons that remain hard to explain and perhaps increasingly harder to justify. How these prices get set and who actually ever winds up paying them is also difficult to unravel. The other conversation that's taking place doesn't have us by the throats in quite the same way, but it's no less important. There's been a slowdown in the growth of healthcare spending in the U.S., and it appears to be more than a blip on the screen. So, how do we understand the relationship between seemingly untouchable healthcare prices in the U.S., such as a $40,000 hip replacement, and a recent slowing of healthcare inflation year over year? Are these the last gasps, gasps, I think I can say that, of expensive American health care that one way or another we're bound to tame and transform? What do the experts think? What do you think? We'll find out on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you bi-weekly, and also you can find us later on IHI.orgs and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. So something's up with U.S. healthcare spending, and the question is, what precisely? One of our guests, David Cutler, wrote in the July 3rd JAMA online forum that actors in the system have a golden opportunity to seize this moment and make some wise decisions. Will they? You can help sort it out. A reminder, Twitter users unite. You can tweet during or after today's program. Uh, thanks for using the hashtag IHI in your tweets. Uh, we are at the IHI. And maybe some of our guests have Twitter handles as well that we'll find out about. So let me now introduce them and a reminder that their longer bios and many, many achievements and accomplishments uh, are on their own organizations, websites, and on the WIHI webpages on IHI.org. So first, to my left here is Don Berwick. He is President Emeritus and a Senior Fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. That's an organization he co-founded and led as President and CEO for 18 years. Don is a pediatrician by background. He's one of the nation's and the world's leading authorities on healthcare quality and improvement. He served as Administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, from July 22 to December 2011. Welcome, Don. Thanks, Madge. David Cutler is across the table here. He's the Otto Eckstein Professor of Applied Economics in the Department of Economics at Harvard University and holds secondary appointments at the Kennedy School of Government and the School of Public Health. David has served on the Council of Economic Advisors and has advised several presidential campaigns. He was a key advisor in the formulation of the recent cost control legislation in Massachusetts and is one of the members of the Health Policy Commission created to help reduce medical spending in the state of Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Welcome, David. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, great. It's great to have you. And uh, Amitabh Chandra, am I getting all the pronunciations correct? Like a native. Okay. <laughs> Amitabh Chandra is an, an economist, a professor of public policy, and director of health policy research at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. He's a member of the Congressional Budget Office's Panel of Health Advisors and is a research associate at the IZA Institute in Bonn, Germany, and at the National Bureau of Economics. Research. Amitabh's research focuses on productivity and cost growth in healthcare, medical malpractice, and racial disparities. Welcome. Thank you. 
So um, this is fantastic. And yes, we're kind of in the neighborhood here. Uh, everybody was able to walk over. That's wonderful. Usually many of you are in far-flung locations, but it's nice. We have a, an in-studio guest um, uh, appearances today, and uh, we invite all of you into this conversation. Listen with us in this first uh, 20, 25 minutes or so, and uh, you can start scratching out your questions and comments in chat, but we will uh, wait and uh, start addressing those at the half hour mark. And I thought what I would do is just tick off, as I spoke to these fine gentlemen about how to wrap our arms around what's going on, this is what we're going to try and cover for you today, what's happening with uh, slowdown in the growth of healthcare spending, contributing factors, what's some of the good news about the circumstances, what are some caveats and cautions when it comes to interpretation, what are some other forces in motion that we maybe should be paying attention to, what could happen for a brighter future. <laughs> and what advice do Don and David and Amitabh have for healthcare professionals and improvers? So maybe you can leave here today with some thoughts about what role you can play in this circumstance as opposed to being a bystander, which I think sometimes when it comes to economics, many of us feel that you know we're, we're looking up information that we have nothing to do with. So hopefully we can um, get at some of that. All right, we're going to start off with David Cutler. So I want to refer to your um, article in the May issue of Health Affairs. You had this wonder, well, they perhaps chose this title uh, for the article. It says, if slow rate of healthcare spending growth persists, projections may be off by $770 billion, referring to public sector healthcare spending. This is very exciting. <laughs> I don't know who fell over when they read that, but that's very, very exciting. So, David, I start with you. What's going on? Uh, well, thank you, and uh, uh, it's at least about as exciting as economics gets, which, <laughs> which is to say that not nearly as exciting as accounting, but maybe close to it. Um, let me contrast with you two pictures. The first is what we have long believed about uh, health care in the federal budget, which is that health care costs grow much more rapidly than the economy. The revenues coming into the federal government grow with the economy. The money going out grows faster than the economy, and no surprise, you've got a problem. Them. And that's true at a family level or a business level or a government level. If what's coming in is less than what's going out, you've got a problem. And so if you look at the forecasts of the United States budget over the longer term, they show incredible deficits, huge debt problems, sort of you can't even forecast it out because it looks terrible. And the vast bulk of the problems are in health care. That is approximately the, the, the right way to say it is the U.S. does not have a budget problem. It has a health care problem. And so that's sort of what we've been um, uh, focusing on quite a lot, and that's the proposals to cut Medicare and Medicaid and the sequester and the debt limit fight and all of that. What sort of snuck up on us that nobody had really appreciated until very recently is that if you look at what's going on in the health sector, um, estimates of the growth of medical spending are coming in far below what anyone thought they would be. This is true from prescription drugs and the Medicare Part D, which is less. We're seeing uh, hints now that the premiums that are coming into the exchanges for the Affordable Care Act are far below what it was guessed they would be. The growth of physician uh, services is far below what trends were. Some of it's obviously the recession, which is in any recession people cut back because their income falls, because their time available for healthcare or the time they feel like they can spend in the healthcare system is declining. But it both predates the recession and postdates the recession. In fact, many of the 
the the slowest uh, growth rates in healthcare have really come in the last couple of years. And the the article that you referred to is really saying, well, suppose that that continues. If that continues, what does it mean? And the answer is that the growth in spending is so slow compared to what you'd expect that the implications are just immense. I mean, on a three trillion dollar healthcare system, the savings would be you know a trillion or two trillion out over a decade. Enormous savings for the federal government. Enormous savings for businesses and families and all of that. So it's a it it matters say far more than you know do we cut a little bit from the FAA and do we do we what do we do about you know foreign aid and so on. I mean this is about you know a million times as big as those. So really very very important information. I'm going to have Amitabh jump in and uh, as part of a little discussion about contributing factors, but I want you to just tick off. You started to talk about um, uh, maybe pharmaceuticals, technology, but what would you say are some of the biggest contributing factors to this uh, apparent slowdown? Let me give you my top three. Okay. The first one is a much slower growth of technology and medicine than uh, we're used to. If you look at what's gone on in medicine over time, it's been the development and the diffusion of new ways of treating people, whether it was cardiac technologies, new drugs, um, imaging, any any uh, any area that you look at. There have been technological changes in the past decade, but they've not been as rapid, nor have they been as extensive. So um, I found the only group of people who have a worse forecasting record than economists about the economy, and that is analysts forecasting cancer drugs. They've correctly predicted zero of the past 15 uh, uh, drugs that would be blockbusters. There hasn't been a blockbuster drug since Lipitor, which is now generic, by the way. Mm-hmm. So the slowing of technology is a big, big thing. Second, uh, people's cost sharing has increased quite a lot. Um, the typical deductible in an individual uh, insurance policy is now uh, over $1,000. A family deductible would be two or $3,000. You have to remember the typical American family has a few hundred dollars in the bank. So this, so their deductible is more money than they could lay their hands on if you ask them to lay their hands on it. And that's discouraging a lot of people from... Um, uh, from uh, from using medical care services, and that's a very big deal. And the third one is what I call the IHI effect, or sometimes I call it the Berwick IHI effect, which is that after years of pointing out across the system that we were doing things that were both expensive and not contributing to patient health, we're actually starting to reverse some of those. So rates of hospital-acquired conditions are down. Again, the, I, I really think the IHI has had an enormous amount to do with this. Rates of readmissions to hospitals are down. Again, look at what was going on both here at IHI and when Don was at um, CMS in terms of the emphasis that's put on these things. So we're starting to see productivity improvements showing up in aggregate healthcare numbers, and that's a really very exciting thing to see. Okay, thank you so much, David Cutler. And uh, somebody asked already about the reference. I am talking about the most recent May, well, not the um, June or July issue, but the May issue of Health Affairs, and we'll get that, um, that, David. There's a whole series of articles about healthcare spending and costs in that issue, and we'll get that uh, reference into the chat in just a second specifically. So, Amitabh, what would you add to this in terms of... Uh, 
now that you've you've you do pay attention, I know to what David talks about. <laughs> now you've heard uh, kind of his some of his version of events. What would you um, comment on or add to uh, either in terms of what's going on or what's contributing? So let me say two things. The first is I would I'm one of those people who would love to think that the slowdown in spending is likely to be permanent because it suggests that the the dire forecasts that we've been used to uh, may may turn out to be a lot rosier. I would also love to ascribe the slowdown to public policy. I'd love to say that, look, it was something about the Affordable Care Act um, that has gotten providers to think harder about what they're delivering. Um, However, what we know about healthcare spending is that if you look at the necessary conditions to introduce a slowdown, what we would need to do is we would need to have changed the incentives facing providers. And we really have not done that in the past three or four years. We've started the conversation on how we would like to do that. But most providers are still confronting the same incentives that they confronted three or four years ago prior to the slowdown happening. The second thing we need is we need much more competition in the provider marketplace, and we know that that trend is going in the other direction. We see many more hospitals buying up physician practices, much more consolidation. So the fact that we haven't changed incentives, nor have we added competition, makes me think that the bulk of this slowdown is the recession combined with David's theory that it is a one-time slowdown in the arrival and diffusion of new medical technologies. And before we cheer, let me just be the uh, let me just be the pessimist on this. You know, one crystal ball that I always use to ask, "Gee, is this slowdown likely to be permanent?" is to look at the growth of healthcare employment. And healthcare employment in healthcare has absolutely not slowed down. And if you look at the jobs report, month after month, even during the months of the recession, it was the only sector that created jobs, which means that capacity has not fallen. When those new medical innovations are discovered, and when they do show up, and when they are approved, we have the capacity to adopt them right away. And so my sense of this is this is terrific. It's great news for the U.S. Treasury, but our work is far from done. Okay. Well, I um, I'm, I think you're both right. No. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you, Amitabh. I actually, uh, John, throw up this uh, slide. I'm gonna is a way I'm gonna uh, get Don in here. This one about uh, what's going on and the degree to which um, employees and uh, us average Americans are maybe absorbing. So, John, you know, uh, we often talk about this idea that if consumers have more skin in the game, um, somehow, uh, you know, we'll have this will also have an effect in reducing spending uh, and uh, perhaps reducing waste. And um, this is a, these are this is one of David Cutler's slides, and it is looking at a trend that I think many people can you know are, are experiencing right now: larger deductibles, changes in plan. Um, certain steerage, you know, if you go here, you'll pay this amount. If you go here, you'll pay, you know, a higher copay. So I wanted to ask you, what about this cost shift? This has always been um, the sort of almost the, the the confounding issue about reducing spending. And do you think, uh, are you closer to Amitabh or David here? Do you think that what we've got uh, is actually some way that costs are perhaps just migrating around rather than really slowing down? 
Well, with the two best analysts in the country across the table from me, I will be a fool to try to arbitrate. Uh, I think they both made very strong cases for different ways of interpreting this. And yeah. I don't know yet. We, we will be so much smarter in a couple more years. We'll, we'll, we'll then be able to look back a bit and see is it stable and what has happened. Um, so I share Amitabh's hope that this is sustainable. And uh, I'll add to that and that it is about improvements of care for patients. If this is done because, but through harm to patients, the country will have made a very big mistake. If you take, for example, the issue of slowing of technology, we could celebrate the slowing of development and adoption of technologies that are excessive and don't really help people, but we should lament a slowing of investment in technologies that actually make us a healthier, stronger country, and, and we're going to have to see how that balance plays out. This slide that you're showing is, is on my worry list. Uh, I think there are a couple of ways that, that we could explain what's happening that I would be um, – worried about. One is the, sh the constant shift of cost to individuals. We're set definitely seeing that structurally. Uh, from a pure economic point of view, economist point of view, I suppose you could say, well, people then will be more sensitive, more likely to ask the doctor, you know, which of these drugs cost more, or, or to ask which hospital might have the same results at a lower cost, and that kind of sensitivity I would applaud. Uh, of course, that could be done by a insurer by somebody else that represents aggregates of patients. Now we're asking Mrs. Jones to ask that question, which has never made a lot of sense to me. If, the, if, 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 uh, if CalPERS can't have that conversation, how can Mrs. Jones? Uh, and we have evidence from the Rand Health Insurance Experiment a long time ago that this is a regressive approach for poor people, that we know from that experiment that although cost shifting to patients did have some actually favorable results for people of wealthier means, they were more cost sensitive, apparently. For poor people, it resulted in aggravation of hypertension, loss of dental services and things. So we have to keep our eye on this trend a lot. I would much rather see us maintain a policy approach to this in which we use the cloud of a market, of an aggregated market, to, to talk back to, uh, to providers of care. David tipped his hat to CMS, um, to the role of IHI, and all the many, many healthcare improvers, I'm sure, who are joining us today as beginning to make some kind of a dent. I know there's a, that goes back and forth in terms of a certain kind of skepticism. What do you feel about that? Uh, me? Yeah. Um, I, well, um, years ago, when I first met Tom Nolan, who's been my mentor, as you know, in terms of approaches to improvement, there's, I've never met a better improver. Uh, Tom said to me one day, you know, in healthcare, it may turn out to be easier to change an industry than to change a company. And it's kind of a Zen idea, but I, when I'm in, in my optimistic mode, I think that's what's happening. I think we are developing a new sensibility. The incentives may not have changed, as Amitabh said, but they're anticipated to change. And it's really, really hard to visit a single hospital in this country, and I visited hundreds last year, where people aren't talking about the new game. And it may be that many, many small decisions are changing in a way that in the end will at least contain costs, and I hope uh, be better for patients. So. There's, there may be something tectonic going on here. That's my optimistic side. Okay. Feel free, uh, any any of you, to jump into anything anyone else has said. Um, Amitabh, one of the questions I was going to ask you, and uh, maybe, David, you have some thoughts on that, too. We talked a little bit about two sides of the coin around consolidation, um, some of the, the worry factor of that, because we've seen this before concentration in the healthcare industry and it hasn't always meant a good thing at all. Um, on the other hand, this is the period we're in now is supposed to be about more integrated care and many policies are actually pushing some of this consolidation. It's not just market forces. What are, what are some of your thoughts about that? I think that there's agreement um, um, uh, 
amongst people on both sides of the aisle that we do want a more integrated delivery system. How are we going to get from where we are to that integrated delivery system? The first thing we're going to have to do is to integrate providers, which does mean that we will need to see some consolidation. It's very difficult for a hospital or physician group to manage other physician groups and other hospitals if they're not part of the same risk-bearing entity. So I'm one of those people who thinks that we will see a wave of consolidation. That consolidation by itself is likely to increase prices because there's less competition. Even if prices go up by 10% or 15%, the opportunity to reduce unnecessary care swamps that increase in prices. So my hope is we'll see a wave of consolidation. Prices will go up in the short run as a result of that wave of consolidation. We will decrease utilization. My friends at Dartmouth tell me we can decrease utilization by 30%, by 40%. So even if prices go up 10%, we would still have saved something like 20 to 30%. And so I think we have to be careful about not getting too upset about the short-term increase in prices. We want to be attentive to issues of market power, but we have to realize that some degree of market power is really the only way that patients will receive integrated health care. Okay, thanks. David, thoughts on that? I want to actually pick up where Amitabh left off, which is um, if you look at the the, the data on uh, waste in healthcare, I have um, shamelessly stolen numbers from... <laughs> Berwick and Hackbarth, giving them credit in the smallest possible font that one can <laughs> produce in these in these things. Um, and and our estimate of waste is about their estimate of waste is about a third of spending, which is roughly about where most economists um, put it. <clears throat> and so focusing on that is a very big deal. What what, what we've what I think we're doing so far is we're really just taking the very lowest hanging fruit. I mean, Amitab said that. The incentives hasn't, haven't changed much, Don said, but people are, think they are changing, which is right. But if you look at where you're seeing the savings, they're actually in the areas where we have changed the incentives. So, for example, CMS said we're not going to pay more for um, hospital-acquired conditions. And then you see every hospital saying, how are we going to do the hand-washing and make sure on the surgical safety and so on. And then CMS has said, and we're not going to pay more for readmissions. We're going to penalize excessive readmissions. And all of a sudden, you're seeing all the sort of discharge planners and so on. So the thing that, that we've observed is that the supply of services is far more responsive to the incentives than we had ever guessed it would be. And this, I think, sort of links up the incentives, which is what competition will do and what the, 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 the efforts of CMS and others will do depends enormously on the environment and with, with, in which it is done. So if you put people in an environment that says, you know, you make more by upcoding and doing more procedures and stuff, and oh, by the way, be very competitive, what you'll get is a lot of upcoding and a lot of procedures and so on. And if you instead put them in an environment that says, we will penalize you for doing these things that we know are harmful to the patients and are just driving up costs, and we will reward you for doing these other things, now go out and compete, then you'll find a lot of competition that way. And and so to me, that's actually the most surprising thing that we've seen is how responsive these practices are that we had all thought were so deeply ingrained and you were never going to get rid of them and stuff. And it's really very surprising. Which raises many questions, but Don, I guess I'll ask you. Um, some of this suggests that CMS is playing a pretty significant role. And I'm wondering... 
given in our American is apple pie sense that it's the market finally that you know really starts giving folks a kick in the pants. Is this a surprising? Um, would, well, do you agree with that? That CMS is kind of setting the terms, and uh, is it surprising the degree to which it is? Well, uh, CMS, although it's a government agency, is one enormous purchaser. It speaks with a loud voice. It's covering one out of three Americans. So yes, when when policy shifts in a in an understandable and uh, cogent and continuous way in CMS, you will see the provider uh, market uh, change its behavior. So it's not a surprise. Well, I, that, to me, by the way, speaks of the importance of having a payer who can speak with a loud voice on behalf of beneficiaries. Uh, I think it's it, – I've always felt when I was at CMS, I, I made it a central tenet of my approach was that whenever possible, we would not act alone because there's so much more heft when alignment exists with the private sector payers, measurers, and, and, and with the professional groups. But I think I think it probably has had a an effect. I think it, it's another uh, challenge in government to be constant now, to really stick with it, and that, that's that's really important. You know, I would just say that there are, when I think about who the actors are in healthcare reform, I think of federal, the federal government, I think of state government, and I think of large employers who give all of us, on this call at least, health insurance. We shouldn't ever underestimate the role that the federal government plays in cost containment efforts. Back during the Reagan era, Medicare led on introducing the PPS system, and the private insurers followed immediately. Nothing prevented them from introducing PPS on their own. So I think you see the same thing with the ACO movement. CMS has certainly led on the ACO movement. Now private insurers are following. They may tweak the ACO movement and, and surpass what CMS has done, but I think CMS, by virtue of being the single largest purchaser, um, plays an extraordinary role in transforming American medicine. Okay. Yes, go ahead, David. Um, we've spoken about the provider side some and the incentives going there. I, I just want to highlight one interesting trend that's happening on the consumer side, which is that now that people have high cost sharing, one of the things that they're really clamoring for is information about how much things cost, where is where is it higher and lower, when will the qual- where is the quality higher or not. And there's actually been a lot of effort there's starting to be a lot of effort going into doing that. So you have firms like Castlight and other kinds of folks coming in and saying, look, we'll show you what the cost sharing is for the different um, services everywhere. In Massachusetts, we passed a law last year that by October of this year, insurers, so in just a couple of months, insurers have to be able to tell you in real time the price of any service you could receive anywhere. You're seeing organizations like CalPERS going to reference pricing where they say, look, if you need knee replacement surgery Um, we've looked around here's the range of prices we've taken about the 33rd percentile or so this is very high quality we can show you that here's what we're going to pay you want to go above that you go above that but I'm telling you you can get it here you're seeing um, big corporations Walmart and Lowe's and so on contracting nationally saying if you need open heart surgery we'll fly you and a family member to Cleveland do it at the Cleveland Clinic, which you're not going to dispute the quality of, and um, it's going to be cheaper for us as a whole. So you're starting to see what looks to be a much more involved demand side. Um, I I think of it this way. I, I uh, ask uh, whenever I, I, I see a group of patients or talk to a group of patients, I say, which would you, which is more enjoyable, interacting with the healthcare system or buying a used car? 
and invariably they answer that buying a used car is much more enjoyable. Um, hopefully that will that will change, and that people will say, "No, I actually feel like I can understand my way around this." Right. Okay. Don, so, uh, David has flagged uh, one of the, the, the important changes of the year. I think. I think it might have been. Uh, ushered in in some ways by that landmark article in Time Magazine by Steve Brill, which kind of discussed a very arcane area of pricing and, and made it available to lots of people. The my friends. charge master. The charge master. <laughs> uh, then we had uh, Medicare came forward shortly thereafter by making the pricing public in a way it's never done before. There was an immediate pushback from the industry saying, hold on a second, this isn't really the prices, you got this all wrong. And I wonder what David and Amitab think about that. Like, do, do we actually know our prices and costs? What, what, how should we listen to this debate between the providers saying, no, 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 that's not real, and the the transparentists who are saying, well, take a look at this. You know, I think it's it's easy for a lot of people to say, gee, no one uses the charge master because we've negotiated rates and no one pays the rates that are on the charge master. But the negotiated rates often use the charge master as a starting point. So the, what is in the charge master is embedded into the system everywhere. Even if we had negotiated rates, however, it's not clear to me that the negotiated rate reflects quality as it would in a, in a competitive marketplace. So I think one of the greatest achievements of this movement towards transparency is not just that consumers now have information on prices. It's that for the first time they're asking, do these higher prices reflect higher quality, which in turn is forcing providers to measure quality? At the end of the day, I don't think we'll be able to do much on cost control in healthcare without solving the quality problem. If we could measure and reward quality, costs in some sense would no longer be a problem. It would just be a, the only problem that we would confront, which we've already dealt with in the ACA, is how do we make healthcare affordable for those who can't afford it? Well, that for that, we've got the Affordable Care Act. If we could measure quality in healthcare and get prices to reflect quality, I think the cost issue would, would fix itself. Okay, thanks. David, and then I think we'll probably transition to some of the people are really lining up here with a lot of interesting uh, questions and comments. David? You, you know, there, there, uh, to come to Don's question, there are two, two ways that imperfect information can go. You know, let's say you put out information that you know is imperfect. One way is people say, oh, that's imperfect. It's not ready for prime time. Come back again in a decade when you're ready to do this. <laughs> the first time that CMS tried to measure hospital quality it was in the early 1980s, I think. They just measured mortality. They think there was no risk adjustment. They put out this sort of listing of mortality. There was a hospice or two in there. It was not a particularly well-done enterprise. And it was another decade before anyone felt they wanted to go there. The other way it can go is people say, hey, look, those data are imperfect I really care about the answer I, as a provider or insurer or big payer. I want you to make it better. This happened when um, New York State said it was going to publish the cardiology, you know, the cabbage stuff and the surgeon's rat, you know, after saying first, oh, no, you can't do that. You can't measure it. They said, okay, fine. If you're going to measure it, here's how to measure it. We'll tell you what to do to measure this well and stuff. And that's led to a movement where cardiac surgery is now among the best measured areas where you can really tell the quality of the docs and the, the surgeons well or not. So I hope this goes in the constructive direction. 
Um, I, I think I, I'm hopeful that it will, in part because I like to be hopeful, and also because I just don't see people backing off for another decade. I don't see people with the very high costs they're facing in the businesses, with the very high costs in the governments, with the very high costs, saying, you know what, maybe this isn't ready for prime time. We'll come back in a decade. I think they're going to instead say, if this isn't right, you better tell us how to fix it, or else we'll do what we do. You know, and 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 that's just the way life is. All right. Um, thank you. Wow. Already quite a bit on the table, and folks are really uh, at it already with uh, some interesting questions and comments in the chat. So, John, uh, maybe just a, a very, very brief reminder uh, to everyone or anyone who's not quite used to the chat how to use it. I also want to say I do promise, or I'm going to try very hard to make sure that we have our uh, panelists talk a little bit about uh, what kind of opportunity right now those of you who are tuned in might seize um, in order to uh, moving things forward. Uh, so be part of uh, <laughs> uh, our prognostication by being an actor in this. So we'll get that in during the discussion. But John, you want to quickly remind people about chat? Yeah, of course. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a reminder to send all questions to uh, all participants down there on the chat box. Send to all participants. I see a lot of you have already figured that out. We've had some great questions and uh, we'll get to tackling those soon. All right. Thanks a lot. I think the first one I'm uh, I'll, I'll do my best, folks. The first one I want to um, throw out to the group is um, the grand experiment with accountable care organizations and to what extent we have any evidence of uh, sort of how that is working and to what extent it's contributing to any of the trends we're talking about today with costs and spending. Um, this is one of the areas or one of the new structures that's emblematic of what we're talking about today. Anybody interested in uh, taking up the ACO, um, either what's happening on the commercial side or what uh, CMS kind of instigated? Uh-oh. David, um, it's hard to take we... that question on with Don in the in the room. So, so I think we should start with Don and then have David and me um, um, uh, join that conversation. All right, you're on, Don. Well, it's an it's excess success in phase one. I think there are over 400 ACOs now, I believe, not to mention the pioneers under the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. So we've got an experiment in our hands now. Uh, it's pretty big. I think it's one out of ten Medicare beneficiaries now, it's, which is that that's creeping up on half of Medicare Advantage, so it's not a small number. Uh, I think a lot of the challenges David and Amitabh talked about are now on the table. Can the industry change so that the incentives that are meant to apply in an ACO toward keeping people at home and well, toward transparency, uh, toward uh, effective cost saving really play out? Uh, the hospital-led ACOs will be the most challenged because this means the business model of the hospital has got to become different. Instead of trying to stay full, it has to try to get empty, at least for the ACO beneficiaries, and that is a major, major culture shift. And I am watching with bated breath. We've seen a recent hiccup around the quality metrics that Amitabh mentioned. I fought hard for very stringent and numerous quality metrics of ACOs because they're, be, they're being incented to uh, to save money when you have to have a watchdog to make sure that care isn't deteriorating. Deteriorating. And uh, to my uh, concern, ACOs have pushed back saying, oh, no, too many measures, not accurate. And I don't think that's a particularly good game to play. They need to be on David's track, too, and saying, yes, we want metrics. Here's the new ones. Here's how to be measured. But I think that's just a hiccup right now. So we, we will know in the next year or two about whether they're really starting to deliver. Maybe as either one of you jump out, jump in now, um, uh, think about this question as well. Somebody is asking whether providers are 
in any way getting closer to the payer space. Um, and we, there was an interesting piece even in, um, I'm now trying to remember, was it JAMA where it's uh, do no harm financially speaking in terms of your patients. So that, that does seem to pick up on a thread I think we talked about earlier, Amitabh. Absolutely. Um, I think with ACOs, when we, when we talk about ACOs today, we're often thinking about what Don talked about, hospital-led ACOs. So you've got a hospital and you've got a group of physicians around it. Um, ideally, if the ACO revolution works, hospitals will change from being revenue centers to becoming cost centers, and we will focus a lot more on prevention. But the key to reforming healthcare is we do need an entity that bears risk. The ACO right now is is really not bearing as much risk as we would like it to bear. So what I think we will start to see is ACOs will start to become insurers. I'm one of those people who would welcome some of that transition. I think the need for quality metrics is even greater as ACOs become insurers. And why is that? It's because we don't want ACOs to make money by under-providing care. Um, lots of other revolutions in American medicine died because we weren't able to reassure patients that valuable care was not being underprovided. So I think the fact that we have stringent quality metrics to reassure patients that valuable care is being delivered is a is a necessary condition to ACOs becoming insurers. But I think that that transformation is happening and, and should be welcomed. David, um, we've spoken about the coordination across providers and the need for providers to work together. And Don mentioned something briefly, which is very important, which is the need for the payers to be able to work with the providers, especially at the federal CMS level. And here, this is very important. The usual way that CMS does demonstrations is they say, we're doing X, you go, do, you do your thing, and five years later, we'll come back and we'll see if it worked or not. I don't think that's going to cut it here. I think there needs to be a much more active involvement. For example, the ACOs say, look, well, we can do this, but we need the data. And one of the things they've been complaining about, as Don has written about, is that the data have been slow to get to them and so on. And they need to be able to modify things over time and to understand all the rules. And it's a, it's been there's a level of frustration among some of the providers saying, look, we want to do the right thing, but we're not really in a position to do the right thing. And so the, the way to go forward has got to be to, to sort of figure out how everyone together can make it work. And it's not our classic experiment. It's not the sort of clinical trial model, which is what we've got stuck in our mind. And so that worries me a little bit. One of the oh, go ahead. I was going to just say to Don, maybe also think about this as you respond. Somebody's asking, does this mean? Think about Amitabh's comment and then David's. Would preventive medicine and sort of paying more for prevention and focusing on that more is that is? Can we be hopeful that that might come into this more? Um, go ahead, Doc. Well, I'll take that. For, I mean, yeah. one of the great successes of the. Affordable Care Act, uh, Obamacare, that people don't write enough about is the immense uptake on prevention as a result of this. It was added to the Medicare benefit uh, in a much more full form during uh, the first few years when I was there. But that was we had to do that under statute, and the private insurers followed suit. So we have a, we have a whole different approach to prevention in this country, which is 
widely unanticipated. How that will play out in cost, I don't know. It could be prevention could raise costs because you don't have a heart attack, which you did. therefore you get cancer. I suppose that the numbers have to be worked out. But I'm very hopeful about that that emphasis. Uh, I, I want to add a detail to the ACO just for the record. One of the attributes of the ACO that has me most excited as an ex- the experiment is that patients don't lose choice. What we're trying here as a country is phenomenally interesting, which is to have coordinated care integration without restriction. And and a lot of analysts would say you can't do that unless you keep patients within a network. Unless I can control where, you know, uh, where my patient goes, I can't have mastery of cost. What the ACO does, it changes the game. It means I'm sorry, patient does have choice. You better play the attraction game. You better act like every other sector of the economy and be the place that people choose to be. And I think that's another protection against the concerns. And I I I, I hope that's retained. You know, as part of that, Don, uh, I would hope that. The ACO of the future is given the latitude to also experiment with patient cost sharing. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be terrific if ACOs were allowed to say, you know what, we have studied the following medical technology and we don't think it's actually valuable. You can have it if you want it, but your copayment will go up. An ACO should be allowed to compete on the size of the deductibles and on the size of the copayments. They could even pay patients to take their drugs. So an ACO might say, you're a diabetic patient. If you are a non-adherent diabetic patient, you will cost us and yourself money in the form of dialysis, in the form of all this health care that you will need down the road. So you know what? We will pay you and your family to take this drug. I know this is going to be politically unpopular, but just, you know, this is all economics right now. But another medical technology could come along, and it's not valuable, and an ACO could say, you know, we don't think this is valuable. If you watch a shared decision-making video on this medical technology, we will give it to you, but we just want you to watch this particular video. Or if you want to go to this other cancer center for this treatment, you can go, but your co-payment will be $1,000. I think allowing ACOs to play around with cost sharing is another area for ACOs to innovate on and compete with each other. Deductibles and encourageables or something like that. Encourageables, I like that. (laughs) Absolutely, good bottle it. You know, one of the themes in the chat, um, there's a a number of things going on in here, and we always appreciate when you all talk to one another too and address each other's questions and a reminder we will post the chat uh, you can download it when you get off uh, today's audio program uh, the WebEx it'll ask if you want the chat and any other resources you can download it you can also find it on IHI.org tomorrow but there's a, a little bit of skepticism or some concern about what is it really that's going on for consumers from patients could be any one of us you know five minutes from now so um as far as um, do we really know what's going to help or contribute to good habits and spendings? For example, there's a comment in there that is uh, raising this issue of people putting off care. And in other words, that we're getting kind of a windfall of people holding back. And that is perhaps related to the recession as well. But in general, that the consumer reaction to what's going on, all these dynamics and tiered things in health plans or whatever, is going to be you know, will not be sort of part of the system in the same way, um, don't really have a seat at the table, and will make maybe decisions that will come back to, to haunt them and us. David? Um, one of the things that we've seen is that anything that's elective in medical care has slowed. So elective office visits, elective imaging, elective surgical procedures slowed. And there was a part of it in the recession, which was sort of understandable. I think people's cost sharing had gone up. And also just a lot of people were afraid of taking an afternoon off work to have the elective whatever 
done, so they sort of didn't do it. But what's sort of interesting is that that has persisted since the recession has officially ended. I mean, we're in recovery. I mean, it's not enormously robust recovery, but we're in recovery, and people show no signs of coming back. And, uh, of course, their cost sharing is now a lot higher, but I wonder how much of it is a sort of ingrained view that said, look, I did without it for a couple of years, and it didn't seem to hurt me, and now maybe the doctor says I need it again, but I'm going to be paying a lot for this, and I'm not sure I quite want to do that anymore. What And to the extent that what that is is just, you know, something that's not so essential, we'll be fine by that. What we know, and it comes to the cost-sharing discussion, what we know is that people are not very good at cutting back. They cut back indiscriminately. They cut back on things they don't particularly need, and they cut back on things they do need. And so some of what people are going to need help with is figuring out how to cut back. And I again come back to some of this issue about whether it's ACOs or insurers or whatever, rather than people just feeling stranded out there saying, look, I don't know what to do and I'm just cutting back, someone who can help guide someone, guide people through the system. And that could be the ACO, it could be the reconfigured insurance company that's no longer bearing as much risk because, as Amitabh said, the ACO will be bearing more of the risk. It could be an independent provider. You know, Google Health wanted to do that and Microsoft Health Vault and stuff wanted to do that, although none none of them particularly succeeded in that. But someone who can help people, that's, I think, why people are going to concierge practices as well, is sort of looking for a little bit of that, who's on my side of this, who's really out there looking for me. It's very surprising in a very complex industry to find people not have that. I mean, if you look at other complicated things people do, like saving for retirement or buying a car or buying a house, you can pay someone to give you advice and help you through the process. You can't do that in healthcare, and that really scares people um, a lot, and people are willing to pay money for that. So I think that that kind of thing is going to go a long way towards... You know, whether we can develop that is going to go a long way towards how comfortable people feel. Do they feel like they know what's going on and they're getting the care they need and not getting care that's just wasteful? Or do they feel like they're out at sea and somehow the system is going to be taking advantage of them? Okay, thank you very much. Um, any other thoughts on that? John, do you uh, see, um, Are we just? Do, should we just keep moving in the direction we are in on the policy level? Anything that David's saying that policy might uh, help address, uh, particularly on the sort of patient engagement side? Do you sort of see some additional levers that can help in that respect? Um. Yeah, I th- first of all, I favor pluralism. We're, we're into an era when we're trying to – ACOs, although they're, for example, the very uh, charismatic idea I've been a lot talked about, it's only one of a suite of efforts. There are probably a dozen pretty big efforts going on right now, and we, we need to be a learning nation. And so one of the things is an attitude where we actually have the civility and the, uh, and the wisdom to watch it and learn from it and not assume we had the answers right at the first time, which is hard in a politicized environment. Everybody wants to say, you failed. I want to say, well, you learned. And I think that that's, that's really important. I can't agree. I could hardly agree more with Amitabh and David around transparency. If there's one thing that really is going to help right now, 
I think it's lights on, lights on on cost, lights on on, on the, uh, the patterns of care, and lights on on quality. I think that we, we this is an era where we've got to leap over our shadows on this one and just go for it. And what David said about the maturation of metrics, I totally agree with. It's not an excuse not to measure, not be transparent at this time. Transparency is a tremendous healer when you need when you need to learn. And I, I, I as people I think know because I've written it, I think as we do this, we've got to remember there are vulnerable Americans. Marginal income, disabled people, young children, who who maybe we need to watch them first because the symptom the the symptoms of a mistake in policy will appear first in the safety net, and and we've got to have a moral commitment to that in this country. One of the kind of elephants in the room or elephants in the chat, and it kind of goes back to where some of my opening remarks and Stephen Brill and the other articles that have been popping up around pricing, um, is this issue about what is, what else needs to change in, in this transformed world we're envisioning, integrated, in some sense, new entities, risk, all that. What, if anything, needs to change uh, around pricing? I mean, we're mostly saying you're, we want transparency so maybe people can decide. But does anything else seek to sort of pull back a little bit? Somebody's actually also raising a question about physician compensation, which could be a whole other program. You know, the the pricing story is, is more than just transparency because what consumers are good at doing is they're good at comparing apples to apples. If I were a provider, however, I would not want to say, oh, compare me to this other provider. I would love to say I'm different than this other provider. And so one of the things, that's why the quality measurement is so important. It's only when you have quality measurement that patients can actually shop around and say, okay, here's the price, here's the quality, is this trade-off worth it to me? I think at some point we're going to have to provide the marketplace with guidance on what the dimensions of quality are that that patients value. And they, they, they value outcomes. They value technical quality of care, like did I get my HbA1c um, exam done, did I get beta blockers, but I also value the patient experience. And I think um, we're getting a lot better as a result of the federal government's initiatives on measuring the patient experience, but, but competing on the patient experience I think is key to getting the transparency movement to actually reduce costs. David. I think the pricing will change very substantially. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard the story of someone who goes in for a routine procedure, I don't know, a colonoscopy or something, and their doctor is in the preferred tier, so they get a low cost sharing on that. So they think, okay, look, I can have this colonoscopy. It's not going to cost me too much. And then they find out actually the hospital's in a higher tier. So on the facility, they have to pay $700, which they had no idea about, even though the doctor bill is only $7 or $25 or whatever it is. And the whole thing just smacks of, you know, look, someone's out trying to gouge me, which is true. Someone is really not, not doing it right there. What the people, and people have a very difficult time thinking about that. What they can understand is okay, here's an episode of my life. I've got X condition. I need someone to treat it. How much is it going to cost me to treat this over the next period of time? You know, how much is it going to cost me to buy and own this car? Okay, I cannot sort of understand that. Don't tell me how much it's going to cost for this, that, and the other thing, except for, you know, the extra spells and whistles that you add on at the end, but put the whole thing together. The, the sort of two most confusing areas of people's lives, I think, when you look at their pricing, are health care and their cable bill. 
and neither one neither one has figured out how to charge people for any sense of what they actually are are thinking about and that's partly why people just hate it so uh, so i would expect much more in the way of a bundled price that says look you want routine care? Here's what I'm telling you. There's this package of routine care. You're going to get it, and we're going to direct you where it's going to go, and your cost for the year is going to be $112. And you've got, God forbid, if something bad should happen, if someone should develop cancer, we're going to make sure you go to one of these institutions, and it's going to cost you $2,000 and whatever. And that just put it in some way that people can understand it like that, rather than sort of disaggregating it all. Right. Let me tell I think David's point is is really important because if you look at what is available to consumers right now as part of the transparency movement, it's thousands and thousands of prices on thousands and thousands of medical services. And for sick patients, this makes absolutely no sense. Once patients hit their deductible, first of all, none of those prices really matter. What patients are interested in knowing is, I'm going to have a heart attack or I have congestive heart failure, where should I go? Not only for the acute hospitalization related to the CHF, but all the post-acute care. Please tell me what the price is for treating my CHF over the next six months or over one year. That kind of engagement we can expect and get from patients. What we can't get from patients is the CT of the abdomen, well, it's cheaper in the Watertown shopping center, so I'm going to go there. But this preventative care visit is cheaper in Waltham, so I'm going to go there. Patients don't think like that. And I think that's asking too much of them because when we buy cars, we don't price out the navigation system separately from the steering wheel. We buy a car. And I think we have to move healthcare in that direction. Okay, great. All right, so many good stuff. And I, I, um, I don't think we're going to get to every single question. We're, we're speeding along to the top of the hour. I want, John, would you throw up this particular slide here? How long does it take to save a third? <laughs> Which is, um, I don't know, we got a time span here. And I'm just going to have this. This is uh, another uh, nice slide from David Cutler um, looking out over, you know, maybe 10 years. Um, I know we want, uh, we're in the midst of some changes here. And against that backdrop, I'd like to wrap up uh, today's program with, uh, I promise, some thoughts from each of you. What's the moment that needs to be seized right now? All these folks here who are knee-deep in quality improvement uh, are also all trying to kind of work the metrics, improve the quality, um, it have some effect. Um, so, Amitab, maybe I'll start with you. Kind of, uh, you, you said at one point you think this is a great time to actually get into uh, healthcare. Perhaps uh, I think it's a great time to get into healthcare. It's a great time to stay in healthcare. Most 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 people who are in healthcare join healthcare because they wanted to do the right thing. They wanted to help patients. They wanted to fight disease. They wanted to be healers. And I would say go back to that. Go back to a single-minded commitment to improving the patient experience. And the first thing you will realize is if you just focus on the patient experience, you will want to figure out the right co-payments. You won't simply raise co-payments. You will ask, is this increase in co-payments going to improve the patient experience or reduce it. Sometimes it'll improve it. Sometimes it'll reduce it. It will force us to ask, how good are we at improving the patient experience? And that's where the measurement of quality comes in. So I think the focus on the patient experience will result in smarter co-pays and superior quality measurement. And armed with those two inputs, I think we can start to make real progress on healthcare spending. Thank you. David. I agree with everything Amitabh said. Uh, I think one way of organizing the, the the thought process for people within institutions might be to try something like, say, um, 
start a little bit at the aggregate level and say health costs have been increasing 5 or 6%. Let's say that's unsustainable. Let's say that people are unwilling to do that. In Massachusetts, we just passed a law with a target that cost increases per capita should be 3.6%. Suppose you take a number like that, 3 to 3.5%. You're running an institution. You're involved in an institution. How would you do that over the next five years? Ask the question, how would you, how would you meet that target so that on a per-patient basis you're hitting it? What do you need to do? Do you need to, you know, streamline the labor force? Yes, but there's only so much of that you can do. Do you need to look at variation across docs and what they're doing? But maybe try and ask the question that way and force some of the thought at that level because, quite honestly, I don't see the system as having the tolerance to grow much beyond uh, that for the next little bit. Thank you. Don? Um, I'm a bit of a romantic about the open seat for professionals right now. I think that uh, we're, 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 all sorts of actors are going to be trying to solve this, and uh, the ones I hope uh, I can put my faith in are the people who we talk, talked about dedicating their lives to making patient care better. If they own doctors, nurses, pharmacists, uh, uh, therapists, and their managers, if they own this problem, as David was saying, they mm-hmm. own the problem of the triple aim, and say we're not and they decide to go there and, and engineer that properly, everyone else will then get in the back seat because uh, that would be change that favors patients and favors the society. And if I could say one other thing, that also involves boards of trustees. I think the boards need to change. They need to understand what David just said, what Amitabh said, and said what is the strategy through which we're going to rescue American health care. Okay. And that's going to be different from what they're doing now. All right. Thank you. David. You mentioned at the beginning the um, article in JAMA that I wrote. The My title for it, which they said didn't come across quite so <laughs> nice, my title was um, Ration or Rationalize. Uh-huh. And that was exactly what Don was saying, which is either we figure out how to rationalize the system right. or something will be done and the system will be rationed. We now thankfully have a little bit of breathing space because the pressures have abated a bit. Do we want to use that to figure out how to rationalize, in which case we will really stave off the other, the ration? And if not, Lord, help us. All right, Amitabh, do you want to (laughs) – can you top that? We're going to wrap up. Final, Any final thoughts um, at all? Lord, help us. No, I, I, yeah. I agree with Don. I think uh, at the end of the day, we want providers to lead this transformation. All right. Wow. This has been fantastic. An hour goes by very fast. Amitav Chandra, David Cutler, Don Berwick, uh, you are wonderful audience. David, somebody wonders, uh, is this your invention, this slide? Did it slide. come from, from anywhere else? I, uh, I, I created it, although I surely borrowed it from people. Right. Uh, somewhere along the way. Okay. All the slides that we showed today uh, will be available also when you uh, uh, get off uh, today's WebEx. Uh, as you sign off also, they'll be on IHI.org tomorrow. I want to thank our panel. Fantastic. I know there were a million more questions out there, but hopefully we got to some of them and in, in some general way. I want to thank the audience as well. Uh, there will be some comments on the Facebook page. Please feel free to tweet Next up on WHI on July 25th, 
Uh, I think it's all part of the same, uh, hopefully, a trajectory we're on, integrating physical and behavioral health illustrations from the front lines. We have a fabulous panel for that as well, if you want to talk about exemplar things that are going on around the country. Don't forget, when you get off today's show, you can also download the chat, and there's a nice survey that we always appreciate it if you answer. That helps us keep improving. Any questions whatsoever, you can always email info at IHI.org. The people who help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse. And we have a new Northeastern co-op who's going to help us out as well. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care and health, most of all for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks for joining us today. Good day. <laughs>